So we've been practicing together for four days now, we could say. Can I just check, is that working all right? I couldn't hear it initially. So we've been practicing, engaging in this process of connecting with and turning towards our experience, allowing ourselves to come deeply into contact with our life moment by moment and having the opportunity to pay attention to, to look, to observe, to experience what's happening. Sometimes we might notice the way in which the, the fundamental elements of our existence, it might start to stand out to us that the the basics of our existence are happening very much by ourselves. Paying attention to the breathing process is interesting because we, we perhaps start to notice how it doesn't really require us in the way we might imagine to be in charge of it. How quickly we start to endeavour to assert control over our experience. And this, this habit, this tendency, I think, quite understandably arises out of not really understanding, not really recognizing the way that our life is held and our very existence is held by all that is around us. There's a, a practice one could do on a Ideally, a, a clear night. We might get one of them this week. It's not guaranteed, however. So, but just imagine if you were to go outside in the evening, in the dark of the night, and just lie down upon the ground and look into the sky. You just imagine what that would be like. Maybe we could uh, imagine having something comfortable underneath us to lie on. If that felt like it would be useful. Or maybe just lying in the grass, looking into the sky, the stars above. And just to imagine, if we were, we were doing this, it occurred to us as we lay there, that the, the tendency we have to imagine the sky and the stars above us is maybe not accurately representing what's there we might in fact realize that they're all below us. That we're looking out into a vast empty space. And that somehow we are not falling into it. We tend to somehow take for granted the remarkable fact of gravity without which we wouldn't be able to be here for very long at all if we should happen to turn up in this place without gravity as soon as we moved we'd find ourselves floating away out in the middle of space into the, the emptiness of the universe with just the odd little point of light that we might possibly find our way to, but it's not that likely. And it's an, it's an interesting image because it's, or in a sense, way of relating. Because we, we tend to often find ourselves gathered, sort of pulled in to, and s imagining as if we somehow need to hold on to our life that very primary reflex survival activity of tightening, of grabbing, of holding, is, is sort of like trying to take hold of our life. But in fact, from the perspective of that meditation, we could say, of just lying, seeing that we're quite safely suspended. And in fact, this is always so, even when we can't see the sky or the stars or the emptiness of the vast cosmos out there. But we're actually held by life. We're actually held by the earth. 
we're connected to this. And yet we sometimes take it for granted that that is so. That we're being carried in this life. There's a story, it's sort of like, I guess, a, I don't know, anecdote, proverb, I'm not quite sure what the right word for it is, of... uh, Told a story told in India of, as if uh, someone would go on a long train journey and you, you may or may not know in, in India people generally carry their luggage on their heads when going places or at least traditionally this was common. So you can imagine this person carrying a suitcase on the head and getting on the train this really long journey and in India journeys can be really long on the train you know 24, 36, 48 hours that's just local travel. Um, And having got on the train for the journey, keeping the suitcase on their head. And others might sort of wonder, why why are you doing that? It's like, well, I need to to take my suitcase with me. Sure, but you know if you put it down, it'll come along? Now, we might chuckle, because that's pretty obvious, isn't it? Once you're on the train, you don't need to carry your suitcase anymore. And yet somehow, in a curious sort of way, For many of us, what we might notice ourselves doing is somehow trying to carry our life despite the fact that it's coming along with us all by itself. And we might sort of just wonder, well, that's a little strange. It's obviously we might find it a little humorous to see someone else doing that literally with a suitcase. We think... Possibly they're not that smart. We might be more charitable, but, you know, maybe not. Um, And then we realize, oh, actually, no, this isn't accidental, the way this happens for us. And we might notice the, you know, some of the weariness we arrive in a retreat with, the the exhaustion. You know, it's kind of curious, isn't it? We we have the schedule. It looks really like there's a lot going to be going on when you first see the schedule. But actually, after you've been here a little while, you're actually, there's not a lot going on at all. Sitting around for a little bit, getting up, wandering back and forth, sitting down again, standing around doing nothing for a little bit, sitting back down. You know, if you were to explain to your friends who've never done this before, what you've been doing all day, and say, oh, and at nine o'clock I was just exhausted, <laughs> they'd be looking at you like, what? Really? How, how did you manage to get so tired? You really weren't doing anything by ordinary standards that might appear to be the case. And yet, of course, at one level we're doing rather a lot because just to sit or to stand or to walk is to come into contact with the momentum of patternings and propulsions or compulsions and urges that it requires some energy And some exertion, in fact, to not just be carried away by. To not just get up and walk out as soon as it feels uncomfortable. To not just abandon all of this and sort of go into the library and try and find a decent novel, which actually you might not in there, but, um, you know, when it gets boring. You might, I don't know, I haven't looked at all the books, but there's not a lot of novels in there. That sense of somehow... It's hard work to do this. And as if the, the, the person in India after the train journey, you know, someone says, how was that? Oh, it was a really hard journey. You know, oh, traveling is tough. You know, and they've been carrying their suitcase on their head. We, we often have the sense without quite realizing it that we're somehow needing to battle. We're somehow in conflict with. We're somehow having to fight the way life is. And we don't quite notice it because we've kind of been doing it at some level for as long as we've been aware of anything. And we've come into a context in which there's a kind of a confrontational or an oppositional relationship to life being expressed. Whereby we somehow feel like we have to win or beat it. And of course there are, there are many challenges that we do face that do require us to make an effort in that regard. And yet so much of what 
we encounter, I think, it's mischaracterized as somehow something that we need to struggle with or against. And the, the whole realm of that which we find difficult is clearly in this camp. We kind of imagine, I think perhaps quite understandably, that, you know, if we did it right, this life, then it would be easy. Has anyone ever had that thought? Things are a bit difficult, I must be doing it wrong. Obviously, the advertising media would have us believe that if we did it right, we'll just look happy and well-dressed and sort of all of that in all moments. There's, there's a way in which we're, we're given a story to, that suggests that the fact or the experience of challenge and struggle is somehow because we haven't got it right, we haven't done it right. And if we can only do it better or f somehow do it differently, then those challenges, those difficulties would somehow not arise. And yet something we see in meditation practice on a retreat and in our life, if we look again, oh, we see, oh, yeah, there are, there are, are these things which are difficult and challenging. And in fact, everyone's life includes them. So anybody who lives their life, and you might think, well, somebody didn't do it this way, they must have found a different way. To, to. But if you talk to them, and I, as part of what I do, I find myself having many conversations with people, and nobody seems to have found the right way that avoids having anything difficult in it. And if they did, I'm sure they could write a very popular and successful book. But even the people who say they have, it turns out if you talk to them, that's not the case. So this, this kind of relationship to difficulty that suggests this somehow it arises because I've done it wrong or somehow failed, isn't taking into account, isn't acknowledging this fundamental teaching of the Buddha, that there is that which is difficult in life, which is challenging for us, which is not easy, or which, as one of my teachers says, is hard to bear. And the fact that this is so is something we need to really open ourselves to being touched by, to stand under, to understand this. The challenges and the difficulties we encounter are where and how we learn. We'd all be very comfortably curled up asleep if there wasn't such a thing as discomfort or difficulty. And sometimes we might notice in our practice this wish for everything to be okay, for everything to be easy, for everything to be just right, whatever that would be. And if you check with your mind what that means you can do, once everything is like that. We might think at first, I can be happy. That, that's kind of the story that goes with it. If all of this was okay, then I could be happy. But actually, what that might mean, if you look at it, it means, oh, then I can just kind of curl up comfortably by the fire and go to sleep. That's kind of what happens when things are going well. There's a way in which we start to just want to go back into a comfortable unconsciousness that turns out not to be comfortable at all. If we understand that what is challenging and difficult for us is, is that which allows us to grow, that which allows us to open, then perhaps we can turn towards it with more willingness, more courage, perhaps even Enthusiasm, if that's not too strong a word. In the prophet Khalil Gibran writes, he speaks, he talks of pain, he says, Your pain is the breaking of the shell that encloses your understanding. Just as the stone of a fruit must break so that its heart can stand in the sun. 
so too must we know pain. Something quite, it's challenging to hear something like that because of course pain is not easy. It's not easy for us. And yet what it's saying is that it's actually what also what opens us. When we turn away from pain, we disconnect from ourselves, we disconnect from others. When we turn away and disconnect from life, pain creates the sense and the experience of being separate, of being different, of being distant. And this is deeply painful. Perhaps more painful than any pain we can experience is the interpretation or the conclusion we make from it that suggests this is because I have done something wrong or this is because I am somehow without a ground, a place and a context here. We take it as meaning something about me. But when we hear, when we see, when we talk and when we share with others and perhaps we, we recognize that everyone encounters that which is painful. And of course, and clearly for some, there are extremes of pain which seem there could be no rational justification for. And I couldn't claim to be able to explain how that was or why that was. But I also can say that I know and have seen through many conversations that people who have found their way through extreme challenges have become remarkable beings for all the challenges they may continue to still face. And that some of the most remarkable human beings I've known are people who've travelled through some of the hardest roads, which no one, including myself, would choose for myself or for anyone else. And in fact, if we could, we'd naturally, I think, wish to release or relieve others or ourselves from those painful pathways. And that's not up to us necessarily. We can't necessarily do this. And the very process of meditation brings us into contact with that territory. It opens us up. It touches us. By being willing to sit and stay where I am, I come into contact with all of this. And it begins to open me. Of course, I might not be entirely comfortable with being opened in this way. And so it's okay that we'll find our own methods for kind of modulating that process. At times backing off, at times needing to step away. That's natural, that's okay. And yet, what we might also start to see is that we have an immense capacity for meeting what's here. And that life brings us to our edge. To all of us, for all of us it happens. If we're interested in a life of authenticity, of sacredness, of heart and spirit and truth, this will take us to where we are challenged. Because to avoid all of that which is challenging and to pull away from it is to enclose ourselves in a, in a condition that's actually ultimately imprisoning and stifling for us and that we, we fight to liberate, to free ourselves from. So when we enter into the territory of what is challenging for us, what is perhaps scary for us, what is difficult for us, we can find ourselves both wanting to let go, wanting to open up, and yet at the same time afraid, at the same time unsure if it's really a good idea. And there's this interesting experience that for many people arises when, when actually we're practicing and really wishing and hoping that our mind might get quiet. And, you know, despite all um, sort of indications to the contrary, we might find at some point where it actually it does become quiet. And sometimes it's like, great. Of course we can grasp at it. But equally often, it's like, huh? We actually find it scary. 
to become still. Because we don't quite know who we'll be or how we will be in that condition. We want to know what's going to happen before we let go. But we can't. There's a, there's a, there's a lovely story of a, uh, a sort of dedicated spiritual practitioner who was walking along a cliff contemplating questions of faith and trust. And um, they were so focused on their contemplation that they weren't paying attention to the, uh, to the terrain and they slipped and fell off the edge. And as they were falling, they reached out and grabbed the branch of a small tree that was just about hanging on to the side of the cliff. And they looked down and saw the, the river and the rocks below them, a long way below. Looked up and realized they were well far from the edge of the cliff above. And just in this moment, having been really unsure on their questions of, of faith, and they suddenly thought, God, can you help me? This thought arrives not really expecting a response, and then almost letting go of the branch when this voice called back. Yes? What would you like? Oh, oh God, I'm so glad to hear from you. Can you save me? Of course I can save you. I'm God. Oh, thank you, thank you. Please save me. God responds. Sure, I'll save you. You just have to have faith in me. I've, I've got faith in you. I've got so much faith in you. I believe in you completely, absolutely. Okay. Let go of the branch. And I'll save you. Let go of the branch? You think I'm crazy? We notice that we kind of would like to let go and yet we can't always quite do it. So it's really important to, when we find those places, just allow ourselves to pause and just see, oh, okay, there's some way in which perhaps there is fear here. And fear is one of the territories or experiences that tell us we're entering into the, in a way, the, the realms of our boundaries, of what we have drawn around us or had drawn around us that encloses, that limits and in a sense entombs us. Because so far as we are controlled from moving beyond that which we fear or moving even towards that which we fear, our world gets smaller and smaller. And what we might notice if we're afraid and just to say with fear in this, this context that there are, of course, things where fear arises where it's appropriate, where there's actual danger. So if you walk onto the road, and there's a car coming towards you, we could say that's fear arising, going, ah, I better get off the road. That's generally a good idea. It's not, so, it's not a suggestion within the context of Buddhist meditation that you sit there going, oh, this is fear arising, let me be with it. You know, I can, I can feel the sensations in my body. So... So a lot of fear is actually not to do with something that's actually happening. In fact, as uh, Mark Twain apparently once observed, he said, you know, almost all of the worst experiences in my life never actually happened. But our anticipation in fear of things we're afraid of is a deeply distressing and painful experience. So... so Distinguishing between where there might be actual danger and the appropriate need for caution, which means paying attention to where I am to see, is there danger? And doing what I can to protect or mitigate against that. That's, that's wisdom, actually, and compassion and action. That's not fear. Fear is where we actually pull away and we stop actually looking or connecting with what's happening because we're anticipating something that we can't handle and therefore we stop handling it before it even happens. And then we're no longer in a position to be able to see what's needed or to respond appropriately. And what tends to happen is we withdraw and our world gets smaller and smaller. Because although we withdraw from the thing we're afraid of, the fear 
stays with us. And once we move away from this thing into a smaller world that avoids that thing, the fear is still here. The fear finds something else to be afraid of. Understanding it's about handling fear rather than about avoiding the fearful. Distinguishing what we might see here as that which generates fear with where, of course, there might be actual danger or risk of harm, which we do need to take care and protect with regard to. That's different. And so this sense of letting go of that orientation, which here is allowing ourselves to be touched, to be affected, to take the risk to see what happens if I really do stay with my practice. Some of you might think, but it'll be too much. Let's see. Let's see if it's too much to really stay close to the breathing in the body for the whole period. Or to really do the sitting and then the walking and then the sitting and then the walking again all the way to lunchtime. Because why we don't often will be that little bit that goes, oh, that'll be too intense. And we don't quite see it. We just believe it. We're somehow afraid and we find something else and pull away. Joseph Goldstein, um, one of the senior teachers in our community and a uh, wonderful teacher, he, uh, he, he would often observe that letting go is a little bit like jumping out of a plane, going skydiving and jumping out of a plane and then as you jump out realising you've forgotten your parachute. It's like there's this moment of absolute, shall we say, terror? Well, just, oh my gosh, he said, and then you realize that there's no ground. There's nothing that you're going to hit. That sense of letting go into a condition in which we imagine maybe we're letting go of control, but in fact, we're simply opening to the fact that we weren't in control anyway, and this life was happening already. This life was happening already and is and continues to be. When fear arises, and it can have a grip on us at times, it's not an, I'm not saying it's an easy thing to work with, it can be useful to really bring the attention into the body. Feel where one is connected with the earth the weight of your body pressing on the ground, the bottom touching the earth beneath you, the feet on the ground of standing, that solid, substantial quality. It's like we are resting on the earth. It holds us, it supports us in every moment of our life. And what tends to happen when fear arises is the energy comes up, rises up into the head, into the mind, into the thinking functioning. And we lose that contact with the earth, with the sense of ground. And the fear gives us rush of energy, and it's a lot of air energy in terms of the elements. Air is movement. And we get this kind of upward moving energy. So breathing out. The body so settles and softens downwards as we breathe out, feeling the contact with the earth, feeling the ground. This is where we are. And we can contemplate, we can reflect sometimes. Now the process of fear is born of our memories of that which has been difficult and painful in our past. And of course, for many of us, we've had deeply difficult or distressing or painful experiences and naturally we would not wish to repeat them and we need to take care to protect ourselves so far as we can and are able to and that sense of fear of what might happen to me in the future is always and only constructed out of fragments of memory of the past we don't have any other basis for imagining the future apart from the experiences that we've already had, which are already the past, which are gone. And interestingly, this, 
I'm not saying this is entirely a consolation, but I think it's significant to reflect on the fact that all the experiences that we've had in our life that were difficult, that we remember, that form the basis of our imagining of what will be difficult in the future, all of these experiences, we survived them because we're here. And what tends to happen when we don't recognize the process of fear arising and the way we get carried by it is we imagine that this will be my annihilation. And yet the very evidence that we're here experiencing the fear is telling us that in fact, no, that's not the case. It was not that. And so we have the invitation here to explore, to see what it is to hold and to gather this condition of our humanity, our tenderness, our living heart and mind and body. And to hold that with some confidence and trust in what is possible for us. If we were to just imagine if a wave on the ocean might be self-aware, what its experience would be as it was just rolling along, going, yeah, it's nice, looking around, see the, you know, the other waves and the seagulls and you know, a few fish turning up, it could be quite fun. And then at some point, eventually, I guess, the wave notices the shore. And it sees what's happening to the waves in front of it. It's like these waves are going to the shore and then boom, they dissolve in the foam. And they're gone. It's like, you know, this thing, where's reverse gear? You know, how do I make this thing go the other way? But the wave is just going in one direction. And it's a bit like our lives. They go in this direction. We can't go backwards. We can only go forwards into the unknown future. There's no reverse gear. And the wave sees the shore coming and it's, oh, what's going to happen? These waves are being destroyed. And, of course, when the wave breaks on the shore, it dissolves, it's gone, completely. It would seem. And yet, the water? What happens to the water when the wave lands on the shore? It's unharmed. It's still the water that it was and can only be that. It can't be and doesn't become anything other than that. I had the interesting experience a few years ago when I was teaching in Israel. I've been leading retreats there for, for many years and it was the first time I managed to uh, get a, little, a few extra days to go and uh, visit the Dead Sea, which I'd heard about for, for, for many years as uh, quite a remarkable natural phenomena. And a very interesting thing because for various reasons I've never learnt to swim properly. And so I can kind of keep myself afloat for a little while but I generally don't like doing it in deep water because as far as I can see it's a bad idea since I can't really swim. And, and my system, I basically it doesn't need deep water. If I put my face in water my body reacts as if this is about to kill me. Um, even a sink in a bathroom. <laughs> so um, that's part of why I've never learnt how to swim. Um, but I went to the Dead Sea where I know that actually the nature of it is that you can't sink in it, that it's buoyant. And it was very interesting to enter in because my whole relationship to water is actually I can't really float in that stuff. I can just about float for a little while. And to go out into it and see actually 
wow, it actually holds you. You actually float in this water without having to do it. In fact, it's so buoyant that it actually tries to pop you out onto the surface. You, can't actually, you actually have to swim downwards into it to stay in the water. It kind of wants to, like a piece of you know, polystyrene foam, it wants to pop you out on the top. And if you want to be in the water, it's kind of weird. So um, it's a really curious experience of realizing, oh, actually, my whole system is telling me, no, it's not okay to relax here. You can drown in this stuff, it can kill you. And actually, it's not true. And in another situation, it would be wise to be careful. But in that situation, oh, really interesting seeing how slowly it was that my system could recalibrate to say, okay, I think you could relax. You could go a little further out. And it's like, hey, you could go out, you could go out into the middle of this stuff. And it wouldn't really matter that you're, you know, hundreds of meters from shore because you can't sink in it. I mean, I didn't go too far out because you also don't want to get it in your eyes or your ears because it's full of salts that sort of burn if you if you do get splashed, though you're not actually going to go in. And it was just very interesting to see, oh, okay, that's, that's a process where it takes time. We have to be patient with ourselves as we learn to trust this medium that we're in. Like we're actually in a medium in which we are buoyant. The nature of our life is that it's something in which we are buoyant. And as we start to open in that way, as we start to allow ourselves to be impacted, to be touched, to be affected by our experience, when we're not in a place of kind of an adversarial or a confrontational sort of relationship where we kind of feel like we're having to fight it or defend ourselves against our life. When we understand that, yes, there may be that which is difficult, but that actually we have the capacity to meet that to open to that, to allow that to be part of our transforming journey, our journey of transformation. What we might notice is that when we're not looking at the experience in the world around us from that kind of making it something other that's dangerous to us, that we need to keep ourselves somehow away from we notice it starts to touch us. It starts to affect us. It starts to move us. And just a, a leaf on a tree or a pebble on the path, we might just notice somehow that we resonate when we attend to it. We might just feel a foot, the moment of our foot touching the ground. And we've taken how many hundreds and thousands of steps in our life and how many dozens of them mindfully on this retreat and just somehow that contact and we just feel something that speaks to us differently than that sense of me standing on the earth. It's like, oh, actually the, the place where my foot touches the ground, there's a field of connection, of relationship, of resonance and it's not like my foot and the ground. If I'm not looking and thinking, oh, I've got a picture of my foot and a picture of the grass, but I'm actually feeling it. It's like, oh, they actually merge into each other. And we might just check right now if we, without looking or moving, just feel where our bottom is on the seat or the cushion. Just check in. Can you feel where the one ends and the other begins? When we're actually in the experience, when we open to it, Actually, it's a whole realm of texture that doesn't actually speak in terms of me and you or this and that, but it speaks in the, in the expression or the expression of its communication is that we feel or we sense the realm of our contact and connection with. And so when I feel my bottom, what I call my bottom, and what I call the seat, what I feel is this area of firmness and softness 
that kind of deepens to a point or a region of intensity and then fades away at either, direct, at either side. And it's speaking to something that's not an experience of being separate from. And when we notice something that moves us, that touches us, we might notice that our heart resonates and we feel something. And it's like the world gets in. That most intimate innerness of ourselves is affected by the life around us precisely and entirely because we're not separate from it. We're not apart from it. There's not a a boundary or a line where it somehow it stops and we begin. The very air that we breathe in to our bodies has been breathed out by the trees and the grasses and our neighbours, which is sometimes not quite such a pleasant contemplation. It's not just come out of the leaves and the grasses. It's also been what's been breathed out by our neighbours. And yes, it's still quite sweet. But some of it's been in their lungs. We don't talk about that, do we, normally? <laughs> it's like, can someone open a window, please? But actually, no, how fortunate, how generous. In fact, what we each breathe out is part of what nourishes our neighbours. And of course, the trees and the grass and the leaves of things that grow that are green, they make use of all of that to make more of the stuff we need. So maybe we might contemplate when we're next eating our lunch. Just, you know, we all know it and, and yet we don't quite know how many people's work has gone into growing the food and bringing it to us and cooking it for us. And how many other creatures have been involved in the growing of that food, the pollinating of the plants, the little creatures in the soil that help keep it aerated and <coughs> fertilised and... And just the very elements of it, born of the earth and the sky, the wind and the rain and the sun, that nourish our very body. And our heart too is grown of all the contact we've had. the tenderness and moments of love and kindness. And it's equally formed of the, the place of impact, of pain, of, of harshness. We see that our being with each other, being affected by each other, gives us an opportunity, an invitation to deepen, to grow, to cultivate more of where there is openness and softness and connection. And to also find healing in the places of pain or of grief or of sorrow. Through connecting, through seeing what it is that we connect with, through allowing ourselves to open out into the larger participation in life that we are. And it's perhaps a little bit like that wave from before. We see the wave is moving on the surface of the ocean, but it's not separate from the ocean. It never can be. It's simply an expression of the ocean. And as we drop more deeply into our experience, we see that the, the wave and the, the movement and the activity that's on the surface is not separated from or apart from or ultimately different than that deeper dimension of our life that we start to feel, that we start to make contact with as we settle more fully, as we give ourselves more wholeheartedly into our experience, into each moment, that the stillness of the ocean's depths is not separate from the waves on the surface flowing 
and moving in the wind, crashing on the shore. And this human being, born of confusion and sometimes fear, we hold ourselves so tightly. And that tightness, it's like a squeezing with our fists. We notice the response to that which is challenging of contraction. And this isn't something that we should blame ourselves for at all. Every single cell in our body is obeying the simple principle that the very first cells learnt as a way of existing in the ocean when life was just single cells in the ocean. And it was just basically just this little ball of juice. A little membrane wrapped around it. And basically if you come to some food, you want to relax that membrane and absorb as much of the nutritious, nourishing stuff as you can. And if you come to something that's toxic, poisonous, then you tighten up you contract and you squeeze in and try and not let that stuff in. Because if you let it in, it, it might kill you. And so this is how little single-celled organisms function. They did that right the very first living things, hundreds and thousands and millions of years ago. And the very much larger and more complicated versions of life, like us, where we've got tens of thousands of billions of cells, each one of those cells tends to do the same thing. When something seems threatening, dangerous, scary or toxic in some way, we tighten. It's a great survival mechanism. It's not really contributing that much to happiness. And so part of the journey of awakening is actually freeing ourselves from those very primal biological survival mechanisms. Understanding they have their place. And sometimes we do need to say stop and no to that which is harmful or dangerous or threatening or to step away or to protect ourselves or others from that which is harmful, of course. But that in the context of the, the immersion in our life, what we're asked to do, what we're called to do is actually to open to it. And it's a little bit like what we could say is that the, there's a, in having withdrawn from the fullness of contact, the fullness of engagement and openness. It's like, it's almost like we've become a little frozen. It's like ice in water. We're still exactly the same as that which we're in. But because of the kind of the tightening and solidifying, <coughs> we don't feel the fluidity and the buoyancy of our life. And ice placed in water inevitably melts. It's the nature of it. It dissolves. It returns to fluidity. It returns to its non-separateness from the totality. And ultimately we see that this life is like that. And so we are invited to enter this ocean of life as if we are of the ocean because we are of the ocean. To allow ourselves to feel the buoyancy, the support that's here and to rest in this more and more fully Rumi says, 
praise the ocean. That's what we say, a little ship. And so the sea journey goes on, and who knows where. Just to be held by the ocean is the best of luck we could have. It's a total waking up. Why should we grieve that we've been sleeping? It doesn't matter how long we've been unconscious. We're groggy, but we can let the guilt go. Feel the motions around you. The buoyancy. So let's sit quietly for a moment or two together. So may we all, in our practice here and in our lives, may we deepen in this capacity to open and to trust our life as it unfolds. To trust this connection that is the very fabric, this connectedness, that is the very fabric of life. For our own welfare and for the welfare of all that lives. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.